Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to see that you're here, those of you who are. Intrepid souls you are. It's a blessing. My name is Frank Fournier. I'm from Eden Valley in Colorado. And it's been a tremendous honor, blessing, uh, to be asked to do the morning devotions. I'm glad that you're here. And I see there's quite a few more people coming in. I'll have you turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And I'm going to ask you, after you get there, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me and we'll talk to the Lord about this little moment. Shall we bow? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are God. Down here, we find ourselves when comparing ourselves with you to be very weak, to be very sinful, to be very needy in every respect, how much we need you. We recognize that you have a purpose for your people down here in this world, that you long to bring salvation to every soul and that you long to use us. Heavenly Father, our lives are short and how much we need you. And this morning we could use some inspiration we could use some guidance. We could use your words to our hearts. And so we're asking you by your Holy Spirit that you would communicate so that we may be better prepared after having come here this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Had you turn in Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to start right there with verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And then if you look at verse 2, you begin to get a sense of how important or how dangerous or how... I don't even know the words that we need to use here this morning, but it says, Who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And naturally, I think if we were to look at these verses uh, just on a shallow level, we would begin to think that this is talking about the second coming of Jesus. But, but those of you who have been scholars long enough, you recognize this is not talking about the second coming. This is talking about his coming to his temple. We're talking about 1844, when Jesus transferred from the holy place of the sanctuary to the most holy place. In Review and Herald 5, I guess that's May 9, 1893, paragraph 8, it says, after quoting these verses, the coming of Christ, which is here referred to, is not his second advent to this earth, but his coming to the investigative judgment in the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. Thus, the message is especially to us who are living in the time of the judgment. And then we get a little hint here in verse 3. 
as to what this is exactly talking about. Verse 3, he, Jesus, who is in the most holy place of the sanctuary, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of the church members be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. We're living in the anti-typical day of atonement. Do you know what that means? Last night, I hope you were here, we heard from Pastor Doug Batchelor, amazing, wonderful sermon. Um, just for me, some people said. As a matter of fact, I think three or four or five people came over to me and said, that sermon was just for you. Can you imagine people know what I need? <laughs> I'm an open book, I guess. Right? Well, in any case, he was talking about courage, and sometime during his talk, he was saying how there are 17 million Seventh-day Adventists in the church today. Isn't that wonderful? Well, it's very wonderful. But I wonder, I just wonder, at least it would be very interesting for me if we could grasp how many of the 17 million actually know what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary. What do you suppose... What happened to that number? I mean, it seems to me that if we're going to be Seventh-day Adventists, understanding that aspect of who we are is probably the most important thing of all. And I just wonder how many Seventh-day Adventists who are baptized Seventh-day Adventists actually understand what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary. We're living in the anti-typical Day of Atonement. Ellen White says that Jesus entered upon his final atonement. And I like to say that Jesus entered upon his, the final phase of the atonement. I, I say it that way because the atonement has come to us by phases. I believe that when Jesus was in heaven, he and his father covenanted together that if there should be a fall, there would be a rescue in that fall. And that began the first phase of the atonement as far as I'm concerned. And then Jesus condescended to come to this world and then Jesus lived a perfect life while he was here, died an atoning death, resurrected, went to heaven, took up his ministry in the holy place, and finally, in 1844, he transferred into the most holy place of the sanctuary to take on the final phase of the atonement. And you and I need to understand what that means. Ellen White says we cannot possibly exercise all right faith unless we understand what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary. When he's done that work there, whether you understand it this morning or not, when he's done, then Revelation 18 verse 1 says that the whole world will be enlightened with the glory of his character because Jesus will have placed his character in his people. Ah, I look forward to that, don't you? What a blessing that will be, to be sealed with the seal of the living God. Well, in order to accomplish all of that, Jesus sent three messages 
call the three angels' messages. There's two purposes to the three angels' messages. The first purpose, which is the least important, which is very, very important, and, and I think you'll agree with me, but the first purpose of the three angels' messages is to warn the world as to what is going on, the investigative judgment. The hour of his judgment is come. Jesus is working in the most holy place of the sanctuary, and our names are going up before a review, and he's trying to determine whether we live up to our opportunities, whether we live up to our privileges as Seventh-day Adventists. Also, the world needs to be warned that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And of course, lastly, the third angel's message, the world needs to be warned about the mark of the beast and, of course, what happens if we receive the mark of the beast. All of that, very, very important. Ah, but there is more important, I believe. The three angels' messages were sent to prepare a people to give that warning. It's no point giving the warning if we're not prepared to give it. If we do not reflect what the warning is trying to get to our souls, if we don't know what Jesus is doing in the most holy place, how are we going to do that? And so in the end, and that's how I would like to start, this is all by way of introduction, we need to realize that Jesus is trying to seal to himself a people. He's trying to get his character in our lives. He's trying to get us not to be deceived or to be led astray. You know, it says in the three angels' messages that, that they were not deceived with, or they were not corrupted, or they were not, I forget the words, but corrupted with women, which really points to the church. You know, they're not, how have I got it here? Not defiled with false doctrine is really what it's trying to say. It also says that these people, when it's all done, will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes especially as he went into the most holy place of the sanctuary. And lastly, and this is to accomplish, this is what is, it is to accomplish, is that these people will be without fault before the throne of his glory. Wow, amazing. So then the whole world will be lightened with his glory when God's people come into line with what Jesus is trying to do. Now the reason... I got interested in studying this at this time is because of a question that a certain young lady asked me. I was going through my cafeteria there at Eden Valley in Colorado. It was convention time and we were feeding people and my vice president was cutting watermelon. I believe she was cutting watermelon. In any case, as I'm walking through this cafeteria, she said, uh, she stopped me and she says, I have a question for you. This is not odd. <laughs> she has a lot of questions, uh, not just for me either. And so she landed this question on me, and I, I would wonder, I would, it would be a blessing to me if I could get you all up here uh, one by one to answer the question um, if it was posed to you. But here's the question. She says, Alan White said that the three angels' messages is righteousness by faith in verity. Is that so? No, it's not so. But that was the question. Actually, Ellen White asked how Ellen White said that justification by faith 
is, or the third angel's message is justification by faith in verity. And so there's a question there, but never mind, it actually comes out to the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Justification is the foundation, it's where we go to the cross. And I think we need to make that precise definition of it. But I'll tell you what, when you look at the whole three angels' messages, you find out that the object of it all is sanctification. I have a quotation in Third Selected Messages, page 202, paragraph 2. Sanctification is the object of God in all his dealings with us. Sanctification is the object of God in all his dealings. And how many of his dealings? In all his dealings with us. So it doesn't matter what Jesus is doing. It doesn't matter if he's going to the cross, if he's resurrecting, or if he's going to minister in the holy place of the sanctuary or the most holy place, or if he's moving in your life providentially. In all, in all his dealings with you and with me, what's the object? sanctification. He wants you to be like himself. So in essence, the question was right. And what's the question? Ellen White says, the third angel's message is justification or righteousness by faith. Why is it that when we listen to sermons on the three angels' message or the third angels' message, why is it that our preachers always focus on the mark of the beast and the resulting wrath of God? Where is righteousness by faith in all of that? That was the question. Now, off the cuff, what would you have answered? What would you have said? I didn't have much time to think, but I, here's what I said, kind of, I, you know, I can't reproduce it now, exactly what I said, but I said something like this. Righteousness by faith is not explicit in the text. It's not expressed clearly in the text. It's there by implication. It's there by contrast. If you look at the beast, you're not going to find righteousness by faith. You're going to find righteousness by works. You're going to find righteousness by force. You're going to find righteousness by legislation, by bribery, by flattery. And if all that doesn't work, you might even find righteousness by torture. But in the end, you will find no righteousness at all because there is no righteousness there. None at all. In essence, all that the beast cares for is control. Global dominion is his goal. And righteousness or religion, that's the front that he puts on there. And he's been very, very successful using that front, you understand? Theoretically, you couldn't find righteousness by faith in the beast because faith implies self-distrust and putting our faith or our trust in something outside of ourselves, even in God. But with the beast, we are expected to put our faith in the traditions of men. We're expected to put our faith in church decrees, in papal bulls and ecclesiastical pronouncements. That's where it's at there. And the Bible, if you just read it on a shallow level, you'll never see it, all of that in the text, will you? <clears throat> well, after my vice president heard that, she turned around, just to show you how powerful this little girl is. She turned around, she called somebody at 3ABN, and she asked somebody at 3ABN if I would be given a slot to speak on this subject. And of course I'm here, and that's what I'm doing. And for three mornings we will be speaking on that subject. Now, in a sense that's a bit upside down, it's a bit backwards. That's not what you'd usually do. Usually you would find someone who has an insight, 
And you would ask that person to go and share the insight that they have. But I received a call from someone at ASI here, and they said that they would be giving me three slots in which to speak, the morning devotional, and they wanted me to speak. They wanted me to get an insight on righteousness by faith as it relates to the three angels' messages. Well, I'll tell you what. When you don't have, or at least you don't think you have the insight on that subject, it puts a lot of pressure on you. And so I went ahead trying to research this thing to the best of my ability. And what happened was I became very, very sympathetic to our evangelists. Very, very sympathetic to our pastors. I tried putting myself in their shoes. <clears throat> I tried to uh, grasp what it is that I would do differently if I was doing an evangelistic series or if I was speaking to a group such as yourself this morning. How would I put righteousness by faith in the three angels' messages? Well, first of all, it's not my job to put it there. It's already there. It's my job to mine it out. But I tell you what, after trying for a month or two, uh, you know, I can speak on righteousness by faith, but to marry the two has been a real, a real um, difficult thing to do. So I came to the place actually that I, um, after about two months, that I thought it was impossible. <laughs> I actually began to prepare a sermon to show how it was impossible. Oh boy, I t you know, that would have been bad, right? I want to tell you how good God is. God is so good. At the very point when I'm thinking this, is, this, this isn't going to happen, just at that point, I had a visitor come to Eden Valley, and some of you for sure will know uh, Dr. Fred Bischoff. In any case, we had asked him to come to Eden Valley and share some things with us there. Dr. Fred Bischoff is an amazing researcher, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to digging out of the spirit of prophecy in the Bible, um, concepts, all kinds of concepts. In any case, he's having breakfast with me one morning while he's there at Eden Valley. And after breakfast, he moved from the table and he sat in a rocking chair. And I got up and started cleaning the Bible, the, the table. And as I'm going by him, I think to myself, huh, why don't I ask him this question? And so that's what I did. I said, uh, Ellen White says that righteousness, the third angel's message is, is righteousness by faith and verity where and on our evangelists, when they preach, they usually preach on the mark of the beast and, and all of that. Where is the righteousness by faith in that? And friends, he didn't even blink an eye. He didn't even blink an eye. He just said, the message is marred in our hands. That's what he said. And I went like, huh? But he had his computer on his lap and he turned directly to, you know, the CD-ROM. He was in it, I think, already. And he just, in just a matter of seconds, he read this to me. And here's what I want to read to you. This is amazing as far as I'm concerned. This is 1888 Materials, page 367, paragraph 1. I never knew such a, um, a quotation existed. So... 1888 Materials, 367, paragraph 1. Watch. The message that was given to the people in these meetings, talking about the General Conference of 1888 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The message that was given to the people in these 
meetings presented in clear lines, not alone the commandments of God. Now, I wouldn't say it that way if I was writing that sentence. I would think to make it a little clearer by saying this. The message that was given to these people in these meetings presented in clear lines, not only the commandments of God, trying to help us to see that there's something more than just the commandments of God that were presented there in 1888. That's what she was saying here. The message that was given to the people in clear lines, not only the commandments of God, a part of the third angel's message, but the faith of Jesus that is righteousness by faith, which comprehends more than is generally supposed. And it will be well for the third angel's message to be proclaimed in all its parts. What's implied here? The implication is that we don't present the message in all its parts. And it would be well if we did. For the people need every jot and tittle of it. If we proclaim the commandments of God and lead the other half scarcely touched, what other half? Righteousness. Righteousness by faith. The message is marred in our hands. Wow. If the third angel's message is righteousness by faith, justification by faith in verity, is it right for us to proclaim the beast and the mark of the beast and an image to the beast and a number of his name and 666 and leave righteousness by faith out of it? Do you know why it wouldn't be right to do that? He shared with me another quotation. As a matter of fact, he shared a whole pile of quotations with me that blew me away and really helped me in my research. Now watch. Watch to see why what we've been doing has not been right. It's terrible, actually. 1888 material, 375, paragraph 2. The Lord has work for every one of his loyal people. For how many? Is that you? Are you one of God's loyal people? Do you know that you have a work to do? Do you know in this context what your work is? Listen carefully. The Lord has a work for every one of his loyal people to do to bring the faith of Jesus, that is righteousness by faith, into the right place where it belongs in the third angel's message. What's your work? Friends, we're the people of the third angels, of the three angels of Revelation 14. We've got three angels everywhere. We've had at least in the past, and we've got three angels, uh, you know, network. And we don't put righteousness by faith where it belongs. And this is everybody's work. How many people's work? Now, this is your work. Could you do it? Being asked to preach, being asked to give a Bible study, being asked whatever you're being asked to do. Are you able, or when you do it, are you putting righteousness by faith married to the commandments of God in the three angels' messages? That's everybody's work. Amazing, it's what it says. The law has its important position, but is powerless unless the righteousness of Christ is placed beside the law. A thorough and complete trust in Jesus will give the right quality to religious experience. Now obviously, God's people have not had the right quality to their religious experience. Otherwise, Jesus would have come long ere this. And so in reading this, we can come to a conclusion. If we don't have the right quality to our experience, Jesus can't come. Jesus has not come. Therefore, we've not had the right experience. The right quality. To our experience. We've got to get this thing. How long do we want to remain here in this world? 
How long do we want to continue to play church? How long do we want to continue as we are if as we are isn't cutting it? It's time we did something different. Now I'm sure, you know, what I'm saying here this morning is not all there is to it. Nevertheless, let me read this. A thorough and complete trust in Jesus will give the right quality to religious experience. Aside from this, the experience is nothing. That's what it says. Now watch. The service is like the offering of Cain. It's Christless. What was wrong with the offering of Cain? It was Christless. It was bloodless. There was no lamb in it. Now friends, we need to realize Cain was a son of Adam. The firstborn as far as I understand. Do you think Adam and Eve didn't communicate with Cain what God had communicated with them? Well, there's, I mean, it's inconceivable. Cain understood through his parents and maybe angels from heaven and I don't know how else God may have communicated to Cain and Abel and everyone down the line that God had a plan of salvation and that God would accept no sacrifice but his own simply because there was no way to atone for the sins that were committed by the human race in any other way. There was only one sacrifice that sufficed. But Cain comes along and he determines that he is going to make a sacrifice. Now Ellen White says that his sacrifice would have been accepted. Ellen White says that his sacrifice would have been good if it had been a thank offering. But it was not a thank offering. He was trying to make an atonement for his sin. In essence, Cain was literally inventing a new way to salvation. That's what he was doing. And I believe he knew what he was doing. I mean, he was too fresh from the hand of God. And the sin problem had just begun. And God, through angels, had communicated with his parents who had communicated with him. He knew what God wanted. But have you ever met people who just want their way? There's a few, isn't there? Yeah. Do you know that all of that is symbolic? of the future pagan religions that would come in the wake of what had happened with Cain. Yeah. Especially the one great religion that we know today whose we call the beast of Revelation chapter 14. And you remember also that in chapter 4 of Genesis, God put a mark on the forehead of Cain. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if it's on his forehead actually. He just put a mark on Cain. Yeah. Do you know that that is symbolic also of the mark of the beast? You want to study the mark of the beast? Study Genesis chapter 4. Be begin right there. That's what it is. And friends, it's talking about righteousness by faith as opposed to righteousness by works. Right from the beginning. That's what it is. That's the issue in the whole Bible. Amazing. Now, I have a question for you. How important is it for the world to know who the beast is? Well, friends, it's very important. How important is it for the world to know the history behind the beast and its purposes for being? How important is it for the, the world to know the prophecies concerning the beast and all the political ramifications that come from that? How important is it to know that the law of God is still binding, especially the Sabbath, the fourth commandment? 
How important is it to know the role of apostate Protestantism in this world and the role of America in prophecy? Friends, all of that is super important. Everyone should know. The world should be warned about these things. But in the end, knowing all of that, if you do not know Jesus Christ personally, if you do not receive the gift of his own righteousness where the power lies, then all of it is a waste of time. It's amazing. We're powerless without the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Faith and Works, page 27, it says, His righteousness accomplishes everything. Nothing else does, let me tell you that. Nothing else does. Only Christ's righteousness will give the right quality to our religious experience. And this is the purpose behind the three angels of Revelation chapter 14. In early writings, page 259, speaking specifically about the three angels' messages, it says this, the destiny of souls hangs upon the manner in which these are received, the three angels' message. The destiny of souls hangs upon the manner in which these messages are received. Well, friends, how in the world can we receive these messages rightly if they are not communicated rightly? How are we going to receive what God wants us to receive if only half the message is ever given? Now, that's an exaggeration. I understand. There are preachers out there, surely, that understand this thing and that marry the two. And there's been wonderful attempts, wonderful efforts made in trying to understand this and in trying to um, communicate that to God's people. But I think, as far as I can tell, we've not been that successful at this thing. We are somehow have been focused uh, a lot on our doctrines and our standards and our lifestyles at the expense of righteousness by faith. Do you know what I think the problem is? And the problem was here right from the beginning. Um, you know, Seventh-day Adventists received their knowledge by and large from a lot of denominations around us. And then we began to think as a people, and I think we still kind of think the same way as a people. We think that the other denominations around us, the other Christian churches around us, understand the plan of salvation pretty much like we do. We understand it pretty much like they do. The gospel, the issue of the gospel, the plan of salvation is not the issue that we're supposed to be looking at because we all understand it pretty well the same. Therefore, we need to focus on that which is distinctive or uh, by contrast, of course. So we focus on the doctrines, on history, on prophecy, and all the political ramifications of all that. But I've got a question for you this morning, and I, I think you can grasp this. Who of all the other churches that surround us, which one understand what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary today? How many do you think? How many Christian denominations under, even, even have a hint of understanding this? Well, friends, there aren't any. No. As a matter of fact, if there is one doctrine that is rejected, if there's one doctrine that is refused, if there's going to be persecution on any issue towards Seventh-day Adventists, it's because of the sanctuary doctrine, and it's because of the way we believe, it's because of what we understand Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary. Somehow, that rubs everybody the wrong way. Well, let me tell you something that's even worse than that. We don't understand it.
We don't understand it. Had we understood it, had we lived up to our privileges, I believe that long before this, we would have been sealed with the seal of the living God. Oh, maybe we understand it and don't believe it. I don't know. Because in my mind, the issue even runs deeper than that. And tomorrow, I'm going to take a stab at trying to show how much power there is in the righteousness of Christ. It's just a little insight that I got a few months ago, and I'm blown away. You know, seeing power is wonderful. I mean, men in any case, you know. Uh, have you ever watched men when there's a bulldozer at work? <laughs> it's just like, what are they? I mean, it's just an old piece of junk, and it's moving earth around and stuff like that. But it's moving stuff around you couldn't move around. And it, you, there's just so much power, and we love power. It's wonderful. Yeah, well, uh, I would like to tell you tomorrow morning about power. And I hope I can. It's not that easy to do, let me tell you that. But we're going to attempt to do that tomorrow morning. Yeah. Here's what I fear. You know, and I know, that Jesus has given us his righteousness. Jesus went to the cross. He took all of your sins. He took all of your sins and paid the penalty before you were born. Before you were born again, it was all done. Way back there, he did it without your permission. He did it without you. You didn't have anything to do with it. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty for all of your sins. And then he turned around and he took his righteousness, his all-powerful righteousness, the thing that can accomplish everything. He took his righteousness and he prefers it to every single member of the human race. Here is all the power of the universe. The gift is yours. If you believed this, what could you do? It doesn't make any sense that we don't do more than we do. Yeah. If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you attempt? Well, you have got all the power of the universe. You know? Amazing. Do you know what the problem is? We want God's righteousness. God wants to give us his righteousness. He's given it to us already. We want it. But we only want enough to be saved. We don't want so much that it interferes with what we put in our mouths. We don't want so much of it that it interferes with the way we dress. We don't want so much of it that it's going to determine what we view, what we read, what we think, what we say, what we do. We want to be saved, but we don't want our style cramped. And so we become Christians. We adopt the plan of salvation, at least the justification part of the plan of salvation. And we look askew at the sanctification part. You know, there's some things I'd rather keep doing. Ah, friends, how is it with you? Do you know God? Do you know what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary? Do you know what it means, the anti-typical day of atonement? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing today? If you had all right faith, you would be cooperating with this thing, and Jesus would be blotting out your sins. Or is your experience intellectual, giving assent to what is true, to doctrines, to history, and to prophecy, but it doesn't sanctify the life. Is 
the message marred in your hands? That's the issue. Shall we stand? Heavenly Father, we know that you've been attempting to do something great with this people. We know. We also begin to sense that you failed, not because you're the failure, but because we failed of taking hold upon unlimited power to produce supernatural results. And so we live human lives with no more than human attainments. And Father, we can only beg your forgiveness. Lord, forgive us. We've gone, we've gone nowhere with the gift of God. And now we're asking you in Jesus' name to change our minds, to change our hearts, to help us by thy grace to lay hold on this gift so that with you, by you, we can make a demonstration that the world has yet to see. This is our desire. This is our prayer. This is our hope. And we thank you for it with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www. .asiministries.org Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.